Episode 1158 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, and I'm joined by Sam Miller of ESPN, who is filling in temporarily for Jeff Sullivan, who is, in a sense, permanently filling in for him. Welcome back. Did you know that today is the one-year anniversary of your first episode without me? Oh, is it? Episode exactly. of episode 1001, yeah. Wow. It's yeah. just flown by. Haven't even Has thought it? about you. <laughs> no, uh, not really. It's been a lot of episodes, but it's gone pretty smoothly, I think, better than I could have hoped. We miss you around here, but I hope I we're feel like, holding yeah, up I don't, your legacy. I don't know any of the jokes. I feel like you got, you're going to have all these <laughs> jokes that I'm not going to get. And <laughs> yeah. You're going to be snickering at, at my, at my uh, obliviousness to your <laughs> trampoline humor or whatever. I, I, even oh. that, even trampoline, like... Trampoline humor is like so old for you guys that it feels like I I just made a like I'm gonna let you finish joke or something. <laughs> yeah. Trying to trying to be internet cool. We have T-shirts now with all of our memes, most of them from your era, but some from the more recent era. But yeah, since you left, we've really classed up the joint. Yeah, what's the last joke? Gosh, I don't know. Probably the I mean the last memorable thing that happened probably is is the johnny o'brien not quite cold call uh-huh. that's not really a meme but it occupies the same space i think as the ned garver cold call did when we were doing the show together but actual meme i don't know i didn't listen to that you should <laughs> well no i specifically i would have but i told uh, you to I, I well not just told me to but you 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 basically you know sent me an email that said well uh, we've we have uh, surpassed you. You're you're now second place among the effectively wild hosts co-hosts. Uh, you sent me an email that said like uh, the interview we did today was even better than Ned Garver, and that was like the whole email. <laughs> and I sort of wiped away a tear and then like unsubscribed to your podcast that I wasn't listening to anyway. <laughs> Full honesty here. I appreciate your candor. So we're we're doing an email show today. Is there anything you want to discuss? Any uh, year of banter backlog that you want to get out of the way here? No, but I uh, I, I do want to ask you. I wrote a, a piece that is the last piece I wrote in 2017, and it's the sort of article that a year ago would have been a podcast topic instead of an mm-hmm. article topic. Uh, but I don't have a podcast. Instead, I write articles, and so I did an article about. Basically, I, 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 I often think about this idea of like, what are we consuming now that will be a classic 60 years from now? And sometimes it's really obvious, but a lot of times it's it's not really obvious. And the things that become classics were not considered classics in their time and were maybe not even considered highbrow in their time or, or weren't considered significant in their time and for a variety of reasons. And so I... Cody Bellinger could be the all-time home run king. I did write that. I wrote that article, yeah. (laughs) You did. Uh, And how we should appreciate the possibility. Yeah. Yeah. It's more possible. (laughs) It's probably more likely than it was when I wrote that article. Maybe. His pace tailed off a bit. A bit. (laughs) But, uh, so this I wanted to to know, I wanted to think about what 
will be remembered by a kid raised in in 2077 uh, about the 2017 baseball season. And so to do that, I, I, I first just sort of jotted down a list of what has been remembered throughout history. And then I thought, well, this is too much work. And so that became an article as well. And so then it became two articles, but I'm only interested in the second one, which is the one that I mentioned first here, which is what you think will be remembered by a, you know, by a fan, by a baseball fan raised on all the baseball cultural accoutrements that we are raised on, all the memories and all the legends and the books and the stories and the the things that are like answers to baseball crossword puzzles in baseball card price guides and and that sort of thing. Uh, What will it be from 2017? Well, how confident, first of all, are you that there will be something? Because you went back and you looked at every previous year and you found things, but did you have to dig deep in some years? Are there some years that just kind of fade into history and don't really produce that indelible moment? You know, I I really only had one of those years. Uh, No, two of those years. I would say two years that I did not have an answer that I thought is is particularly well known. And one was 1948, and I use Satchel Page debuting in the majors. But Satchel Page's debut is not particularly well known to the average baseball fan in um, 2017. In fact, Satchel Page pitching at, at age 59 is much better remembered, but that came in a crowded year. And so I felt like 1948 was disappointing. And then 1950 was Vin Scully. He began broadcasting Dodger games. And that one I, was kind of a reach. You know, it's not like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I didn't generally do great thing, started doing a thing, unless there was a reason that its debut was itself memorable. And it's not like Vin Scully's like first year was like he won like the Broadcasting Rookie of the Year award or anything like that. He's just he's probably just a guy for a few years. Mm-hmm. So those, I don't know, there there were maybe a few of that, a few of those, but I mean, not mm-hmm. more than five, I would say. I mean, tw- I mean these are these are all pretty much like the things that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. All right, so maybe there's a six percent chance that there will be nothing remembered, and then I mean, obviously, there's like it. Did I say six or 60? Six. <laughs> six, good. Yeah. And then uh, the, obviously there's a some percent chance that baseball won't be well-known enough to have a lot of fans and books and things like that. Uh, but I'd say that's a pretty low chance. And then, you know, mm-hmm. of course, there's the other thing. Right. It's the, it's the world ending yeah, thing. Sure. So there weren't any really notable records broken, I guess, except for Judge breaking all sorts of rookie records and then... You know, everyone broke records for like most home runs hit in first X games of career. I feel like that was broken by like four different people at some point in the past season, which probably leads to my answer, which was one of the answers you considered in your article, which is the home runs. And as you point out, it totally depends on what happens next, I guess. So it's, it's hard to forecast because obviously if... Next year, there are even more home runs hit, or I guess I can say this year now, then no one will remember last year for having a record number of home runs. So it totally depends on on what comes after. But it's such a peak and seems like such an extreme that it's hard to imagine it going higher. And there's so much scrutiny around the ball and around what players are doing differently that you figure maybe it's time for someone to adjust in some way. So uh, that's probably the most likely pick, I would say, because 
all the individual accomplishments are home run related or you know maybe not all of them but the interesting ones whether it's stanton with 59 homers or whatever he had or judge's rookie season you've already forgotten how many stanton had i feel (laughs) vindicated for not including stanton in here (laughs) yeah right i think that's right so they all just kind of fall under that umbrella it was like a season where a lot of wacky individual seasons happened and you know reese hoskins came up and was amazing and bellinger was amazing but those all kind of fall under the umbrella of Offense was really weird this year, and yeah, I mean, it it might be just as weird or weirder next year, but I think that's probably the best one. And then I guess the the backup, I don't know how broad these can be if I can just say like the Astros – winning that's not a moment but nobody nobody in 60 years will remember that unless you've got a good reason for this team like i don't i i don't remember they're remembered as trailblazers in the way that they built their world series team right so you have to have a reason for that team so is that your reason is that they were yeah uh yeah i think so and yeah they've got a lot of guys who could be good for a long time and the team could be good for a long time but i think that's why just because the prediction that was made that they would win years in advance and the whole process that led to that and the fact that they were trailblazers in a sense and then it all worked out exactly as they had hoped it would work out and there are probably lots of copycats and people who cite the Astros as a reason for building and, and rebuilding that way so that would probably be my backup answer although I don't know how many years that would be the answer for just team one probably not that many unless it's like a, a dynasty right or something yeah i i other than the fact that picking the yankees gives you a basically a 50 50 chance of being right for a, a <laughs> big part of the century i don't know that many champions from before like probably like 69 maybe or or around then i i know pretty much every team since then but before that it's like well it's probably the yankees and if it's not the yankees <laughs> then I I can name a a handful. But do you think that a kid born this year will know in 15 years that Houston, the city, had a terrible hurricane a few months, you know, a few weeks before the World Series? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't either. It's not part of the story the way that like September 11th was part of the 2001 playoffs. I don't think it's just not quite of that magnitude. I mean, fortunately, it's not quite of that magnitude, but not that many people ended up dying, <laughs> which was which was a, a pleasant surprise, I suppose, since there were even more dire predictions. And then it was almost immediately eclipsed by an even more terrible and costly natural disaster. So I don't I don't think so, no. And I think that the home run, the year of the home run is a really good one. And like you say, I said that uh, it all depends on whether this is the peak year or not, it'll get lost if it's not, because it's neither the change year nor if it's not the peak year, will it be the peak year? But it seems like, you know, baseball was crazy this year. And like, it it doesn't seem like Major League Baseball is um, acting proud of this. Like they're they're not like out there with juiced balls going, we did it, we did it. (laughs) And it's sort of an uncomfortable conversation. We definitely didn't do it. (laughs) It's sort of suspicious. It's sort of uncomfortable. And the fact that it comes in this, you know, in this modernity where uh, steroids are also a part of athletic conversations that, you know, that introduces a whole other thing where like, you know, fans doubt the integrity of your game, you know, already as so it doesn't, it seems to me that like, like Major League Baseball would probably rather the home runs go back to a, a more reasonable rate. And it seems 
you know, that the evidence suggests that for that to happen, the ball is going to need to be adjusted somehow backward. And so you're an expert on this. I, I feel like I feel like the last time I was on here, I might have asked you this exact same question with this exact same lead up. But you're an expert on this. Do you believe that when Major League Baseball fixes the ball, it will do so with an announcement? Uh, I don't think so, except that I'm aware of some research that's being done not by me that might shed some further light on this matter within the next week or two and if so then there might be just so much scrutiny on the ball that they'll be forced to say something if it changes so i mean to this point they've insisted that they haven't changed it so i don't know that they can announce that they're changing it back without acknowledging that <laughs> they've they've been misleading us all along or wrong. that is yeah <laughs> so. that's the that is the tricky thing but they haven't they they have said that they haven't changed it which mm-hmm. is could be consistent with the facts as we know them right i always put in parentheses perhaps unwittingly because it seems sure. very plausible yes. that it totally happened by accident mm-hmm. and they are using a ball that's within specifications mm-hmm. this is not a it's not an illegal ball it's not a ball that is a, a travesty mm-hmm. and so everything that they have said so far seems like it could be taken as honest and in good faith and if they say well we're going to adjust it within the specifications uh, that would not be I don't think that would be uh, considered damning by right thinking people. That said, you know, the when you start tinkering with equipment, you have to do so in a you know cautious way because sometimes it's yeah, no big deal, no problem. Yeah, of course, put the baseballs in a humidor. Uh, and then sometimes it's uh, a you know big scandal, or if it turns out that the effects are greater than you think, then you have kind of a new Coke problem where the momentum against it picks up. And so it's probably like, I don't know, it's maybe less risky to not say anything, mm-hmm. uh, though I have argued in the past that they should be juicing or unjuicing the ball constantly, mm-hmm. and they should be doing it publicly, openly, and proudly. Um, so maybe they'll maybe they'll finally take my advice if the home run rate keeps climbing and climbing eventually it will get to a point where people won't want it to keep climbing and it'll be acceptable for baseball to say we are deadening the ball even if they're not admitting that they ever juiced it or that it was ever juiced they Mm. can still say it's the players doing it but we don't like this so we're going to do something and if if it gets to that point then maybe it would be acceptable for them to say so all right Let's do some emails. Let's start with an Angels hypothetical for old time's sake, although this is not about Trout. Eh, It's sort of about Trout indirectly. This is from Drew. He says, if the Angels could make a deal with the devil and get Albert Pujols in his offensive prime... Never make make a deal with the (laughs) devil. That's the whole point. You don't do it. Don't listen to the rest of the question. It's a trick. All right. Let's say they make a deal with some benevolent neutral third party who has it's the, the power. devil in disguise <laughs> haven't you been watching <laughs> they make a deal with god god him or her or itself to get albert pujols in his offensive prime on the condition that he plays center field in his current physical state uh-huh. would they do it <laughs> <laughs> so he's he somehow is producing offense at his prime level despite yes. Still being a, a broken husk. Yes. <laughs> mixed, uh, kind of a mixed metaphor there. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, so he's... And so uh, what about, wait, what do, wait, what do we, because this is not irrelevant. What do we think about his base running? Because he was, a, you know, close to a one-win base runner in his prime as yeah, well. I think 
Offensive prime should include his base running, probably, right? I, I think that's only fair. So for some reason, he's a good base runner. So this is pretty... can barely move. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty simple math then, right? Yeah. I, and I and in so. fact, in fact, you know, he gets... What, well, he, what do we get? He gets about 15 <laughs> runs just in the positional adjustment. And so... Yeah. I don't know if it's simple because I don't know if there's ever been a center fielder as bad as what a 38-year-old broken down Albert Pujols would be. So no, I don't but, know that there's a comp for this. But, but I mean, well, it's simple in the sense that the math is simple. The assumption, we have to make an, an assumption. And that's what's not simple, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the math is fairly simple. He's a 10-win player at first base in his prime. We're going to give him, you know, another win and a half for the positional adjustments. So now he's at 11 and a half. We're going to take away the 20 runs that he was worth at first base. So now he's nine right. and a half. And then we're going to make him a minus 55 center fielder, right? And assume that, that, that that's probably the extreme end of it because you can always put two speedy corner guys on his flanks. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to be worse than minus 55, is he? There's not that many fly balls. No, it would be it would be hard unless yeah, unless hitters were somehow able to direct all of their fly balls to Albert Pujols. I there is a lower bound to how bad you could be and he would be at that lower bound. So <laughs> but, uh, if he were minus 65, then he's a 3-win player. And if he were minus 75, he's a 2-win player. Now, I imagine that the projections that come out this winter will put Pujols at about a two-win projection. And I imagine that most of us would take the under. So yes. do you think the Angels, if this same devil in disguise offers the Angels simply a much simpler trade, which is you can have Albert Pujols, he's going to be worth two wins, and he's not going to be worth any more or any less than two wins, they would take that, right? Yeah, I think so. The other thing is, I mean, if he's playing center field, he will last about one game. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I don't know how that factors into this. He'll just having to stand out there, let alone run for five balls. Yeah. So let's rephrase. Let's let let me let's do a third hypothetical. Albert Pujols' offensive, you know, level of his two thousand you know nine self has to play center field, but is uh, shackled. Uh, and and can't actually chase the ball, pick the ball up, throw the ball. So right. you basically ha- you have to play with eight. <laughs> Is it better to have him not move at all because he might <laughs> no have run less not... risk of hurting himself? No, or... no. The choices here are you can either have that, you can either have peak Albert Pujols, but you play with eight on the field, mm. or you can have this Albert Pujols and you play with mm. nine. Yeah, I think man, maybe is a ninth mean... is a ninth defender worth? Uh, 90, 90-ish, 90-ish runs. Right. That's, hmm. I don't know. I guess if you, if you can plan for it and have the, the right two outfielders out there, I guess I'd rather have that than Pujols. I mean, he'll catch the routine fly balls right at him, but he will do so for, for, for one game until he breaks down immediately and he loses bat. So, I mean, I guess if you lose him, then you can just put a regular player in there for the rest of the season. But yeah, I think I might take the two outfielders over Pujols and no Pujols bat. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> you think? <laughs> that, that's a little harder. <laughs> Do you think that there's a possibility that we answered this wrong? <laughs>
Well, you said it was simple math, so it got a little more complicated as we went on. Mm -hmm. All right. We got two almost identical questions from two Patreon supporters. One is Ken, one is David. Ken says, say the top few members of a front office stumble upon the elusive secret sauce that would ensure championships year after year. There's almost no chance anyone would discover it on their own. After putting it to the test for a few years, it holds up. Would the people with this knowledge name their price to stay? Would anyone even consider leaving for more money, knowing the magic formula becomes much less valuable as more teams learn it? What would MLB do to restore parity? Would there eventually be a death under mysterious circumstances? And David says similarly, let's say a team figures out something that gives them a big competitive edge. It could be player development, in-game decision, player acquisition, or keeping players healthy. How big of a difference would it have to be for people to figure out that a team had figured out something new? And how would the other teams go about catching up to the team with an advantage? Would the original team try and hide this advantage by only using it up to a point to help keep it a secret? The answer to the first question, but really to both of them, depends on what the advance is that they're Mm -hmm. envisioning. And you really can't answer this question if you don't know whether you're talking about, you know, some sort of like, uh, like, I don't know. I mean, for instance, there's different tiers of things it could be. It could be something that is invisible to the public that is about preparation. So maybe it's like a a CD that you play while the players are sleeping Uh or... It could be that, but even the players don't know about it, which would be a significantly, you know, longer lasting because players change teams constantly. And or thirdly, it could be like, you know, having your second baseman stand 35 feet in the right field, in mm-hmm. which case everybody sees it. And it's just a matter of how long will it be before they can yeah, do their own math. We'll assume it's something that you can't see from outside. How many people in the, how many people, does the player know? And how many people in the front office have to know to implement it? Because if you're telling the whole front office, you've got it, you know, what, at most two years, at most two years before that guy goes to, you know, somebody goes to another team. Right. Well, that's the question. I guess, what do you do to keep them? Because I'm not not talking about keeping the, the originator, the guy who invented Yeah, just anyone who knows about it. Yeah, anybody who knows about it. Or, I mean, they might not leave because they're planning to sell your your secret sauce, and they might not leave because of, uh, you know, they're holding you hostage and you told them to walk. They might just, they might leave. Yeah, especially if the thing is so valuable that your team is super successful, everyone's going to want to hire your people. Yeah. And you can't really keep them if they're getting offered superior jobs unless you're paying, I mean, I guess you could pay just, you know, 10 times the going rate for whatever their position is, just pay them like a, a GM or, or double a GM or something, which, you know, if this thing, whatever it is, is valuable enough, maybe that still makes sense for you. So some people would still want to go because they'll want to run the show and they'll want the position and the reputation and everything. So ultimately... I think it's impossible. You could have a holding action, though. You could delay it a little longer. I mean, under normal circumstances, people are changing front offices every winter just about just because they get let go. They get a better offer somewhere else. There's a a new GM, a new owner who cleans house, whatever it is. So plus you just have people coming in and out all the time like when i was a a yankees intern and they found out about framing they didn't keep me (laughs) maybe i was i was so bad they didn't even hire me to keep that secret at like a an entry level salary so they just let me leave and take that knowledge with me so and that's potentially a a very valuable thing could be worth a few wins to you a year if not more at that time so i don't know yeah 
the tricky thing for the the boss of the the person who develops this or the owner of the person who develops is that these jobs are explicitly about valuing contributions to victories and like basically putting a dollar figure on those contributions so mm-hmm. the the brain who comes up with this should be is probably thinking like probably is in like this is not a person who is raised in the necessarily raised in the 50s where you go work for a company out of college and and then you know retire with the golden watch 38 years later this is somebody who is in a competitive industry that exists only for the sake of competition and who is constantly thinking about how much one person's one person is contributing to victories and how much that contribution is worth and so it is sort of odd i i have always kind of found it somewhat odd that the front office personnel don't change very often don't change as much it's that basically front office people don't treat themselves like the talent Mm. we sometimes talk about them that way and there's been you know more of an indication that the top of front offices are you know viewing that as a place to have a competitive advantage but you don't really see them treating themselves like talent very much you don't see a lot of as far as i can tell a lot of high profile for instance moves you see promotions Mm-hmm. But like you rarely see like scouting director of the twins become scouting director for the Rangers because the Rangers paid him three times as much. Mm-hmm. You see him become assistant vice president of the Rangers, but not just like, well, this guy's worth more. I'm going to pay him more. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, my uh, well, I forget where I was going with all this. I've said it. I've said it. You find it. You find it in there. <laughs> what was my point? It's there. Okay. Well, I don't, yeah. I mean, if this is such a valuable thing, you would obviously restrict it to a a need to know basis. I mean, you know, presumably the insight is coming from maybe one person or a couple people and you're the the GM or something. So the GM knows about it. You're, you're not telling the interns, you're, you're not telling your lower level people, you're telling as few people as possible to, I think, still be able to get the most value out of it without just spreading the knowledge around. But even so, I don't think... It's really hard to also to come up with an example of something that makes you much better in a way that no one else can detect. I, I mean, I guess it would have to be in drafting or scouting or player development. Like if a, if a team just had an incredible run in the draft and just every player they took was a hit, and you know made it to the majors i guess you would know even then you'd you'd know pretty soon what it was right you right could, like you'd... backwards engin- reverse engineer it somehow yeah. okay what are the characteristics of the players they're taking here's the thing that they all have in common so i think it's it's just really hard to keep secrets like i'm trying to think of an example of a past insight or advance that would have been memorable like this well, like you know if it's like on it's base a percentage or something. It, it's a pitch, like well, inventing yeah. a curveball. Inventing a curve. If you invented a, if you somehow invented a pitch that didn't exist right now and that was as effective as you know one of the big four pitches are basically, and all your guys could throw it immediately, that would potentially be you know a six to twenty win. I don't twenty maybe at the very high end, probably probably like six to twelve win advantage mm-hmm. that you could have and that would be plausibly difficult for somebody, maybe plausibly difficult for somebody to copy. Now, probably not anymore. Probably yeah, no, now that so. now you, you'd see that you obviously you could see the grip, 
all right. the cameras. Harry Pavlidis s- would notice it <laughs> that night. Oh, as certainly, he was, yeah. You know, tagging the pitch, he'd say, "What was this? <laughs> this oh, yeah, is a absolutely. new pitch." And but, then we'd have everyone with the you know high speed video and the gifs and the screenshots, and we'd know exactly how he was holding it. Right. So. And there's enough. I mean, everybody knows enough about the physics of pitching that it probably couldn't. This is maybe something that could have happened. I don't know, twenty years ago, maybe. But mm-hmm. at that, at this point, it's probably not even that. But that's the closest thing I can think of to something that is maybe difficult to repeat, maybe plausible to develop, that is not Gani Jones, more or less. (laughs) And that and that would be worth that the person who came up with the insight would plausibly still have value to the organization. Because it's not Mm -hmm. just a flip a switch that you flip, but it might be something that that you can teach to, to anybody. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But even then, you, you know, you teach your whole staff how to throw this pitch and then you lose yeah. part of your staff <laughs> when, yeah. when the winter comes and yeah. they bring it to the other team and that that's that. So Yeah, it's true. I don't know. It's, and, yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> and really with that, I mean, you lose a pitcher every, I mean, there's some pitching staff turnover probably every month. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, so, teams are sending out relievers constantly. The reliever teaches it to his AAA teammates. They're gone all the time to someone else. They spread it. Yeah, it's really, really hard to quarantine a good idea in baseball, I think. Do you think that there will ever be another pitch that develop, that is developed and is, you know, basically gets its own, you know, finger on the catcher's signs that... That isn't like an extreme niche pitch, like you know Jared Weaver throwing a one seam fastball, sort of, or or something like that. But like a like a real pitch. I don't think so. I I remember Eno writing something about like trying to design a new pitch and coming up with some ideas, but I don't think so. I mean, we're talking centuries of baseball here with <laughs> thousands and thousands of pitchers constantly experimenting with grips and releases and let alone coaches at I don't think there's any territory left to be mined there I mean you could have some guy with freakish anatomy who could snap off a pitch maybe in a way that no one else ever could have I don't know he's quadruple jointed and he's got more flexibility in his arm than anyone else and he could just put more torque on it I don't know but that wouldn't be something you could teach so I don't think so. I read an article about 10 years ago about a guy who had found a new cut of beef. Just like right there in the middle of the cow. (laughs) He found a new cut that nobody had ever found before. And it was a big hit. (laughs) Well, there's hope then. All right. Daniel says, hypothetical situation, aren't they all? I read a rumor on one of the many blogs that I read that the Nats are considering calling up Bryce Harper's older brother, Brian, a relief pitcher. My first instinct was that it was strictly a ploy to try to get Bryce to sign an extension. As I examined Brian Harper's Fangrass page, I noticed he isn't all that bad. In AAA in 2016, he had a 2.95 ERA and a BABIP of 246. Plus, he struck out 8.4 per nine innings. Since then, he's had Tommy John surgery and missed all of 2017. The question is, would it be worth it to the Nats to to put Brian in the starting rotation for the entire year in order to get Bryce to sign an extension. How about if he had to be in the rotation for the duration of the contract? Uh, no. Yeah. For one thing. So. For, yeah. I mean, for one thing, I don't like, I, I can't tell, but it, I think this question is asking us to just assume that it would have a strong effect on Bryce Harper's decision. Mm-hmm. And I'm not willing to, I don't believe it would. Mm-hmm. And now I've got, I'm jotting down on my, on my notes my tickler file to someday look and see whether brothers sign 
to play with each other a disproportionate amount of time? I believe the answer is no, they do not. But also, you know. Johnny O'Brien did, which you would know if you listened to. Who? <laughs> Johnny O'Brien. But, but also, I mean, Harper's, I think that you probably don't want to assume that you're going to get like a huge, you're not going to get a discount, you know, at this point. I mean, you want to sign him. Like, I'm sure the Nationals want to sign him. And if they sign him, they will do high fives. And if they don't sign him, uh, they'll be bummed out. But realistically, like, like you don't really have any reason to assume that signing Bryce Harper is going to be great, right? He's he's not going to give you a discount. He's not. It's not like he's a, a guy at three months into his career and he might sign a, a sweetheart deal. He's, he's going to get paid at yeah. this point. For sure. And, you know, half of these deals don't turn out that great. Like there's a sort of basic market force here where like half of them are great and half of them are bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's November of 2011 and and we're saying like, well, all right, should the Cardinals let Deidre Pujols fly the team plane if Albert will will sign an extension? The answer would be no, because Albert (laughs) Pujols was going to be bad right away. We we didn't we didn't know that. They, they were bummed yeah. out probably when he left, and the Angels definitely gave high fives, but like that's half of these things turn out bad. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they would ask for more. If they turned out good all the time, they'd ask for more money. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about Bryce and Brian Harper's relationship. Some brothers can't stand each other, but assuming they like each other and want to be around each other, I would guess that... It would be a a tiebreaker, at least, if he could continue to play with his brother. But, right, it's not worth it if you have to hurt yourself in the process and if you're sticking him. I mean, if he can be like the seventh guy in the bullpen or something, he'd probably be about as good as the seventh guy in the bullpen would be, so that's fine. But if you have to stick him in the starting rotation, that's going to be killing you in a way that Bryce and his presence will not make up for. So... Nope, I don't think so. But uh, it couldn't hurt to bring up Brian for part of the season or something. If you if you do want to keep Bryce Harper, and maybe there's, I mean, you know, if it's a, a potential Hall of Fame player, homegrown, drafted by your organization, could be a legend. There's some extra value maybe to keeping him around, and the Nationals are, you know, are about to lose a bunch of people potentially, and and they're good now, so. Maybe he's more valuable to them than the typical team. But yes, I I generally agree with you. Okay. Do you have a a play index slash stat blast? I do. I have two. They're both very brief. Maybe not totally in keeping with the the format of this event, but Mm -hmm. uh, I have two. So earlier this year, I wrote about uh, Robert Gesselman's inability to swing last year in 2016. Yeah. For people who didn't read this, he had a hurt shoulder. He needed surgery at the end of the year. And so the Mets had told him, or maybe he was, uh, maybe his body told him that he could not swing. And so he, he literally could not swing. So for a whole summer, he batted every time he pitched, but he would go up there and he would like, act tough and pretend he was going to swing, but he couldn't swing. 
So he would mm-hmm. either take pitches until the plate appearance ended, or he would try to bunt for a base hit. And I uh, wrote a piece about this because it was fascinating to watch. So year two, Robert Gesselman has surgery, yeah. comes to spring training, swing in the bat. Looks good. He's got a good swing. People have told me he's got a good swing. I think he gets a hit in spring training. And sure enough, he's swinging. He's a swinger. So a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at baseball prospectus leaderboards. And I noticed something odd about this, which is that Robert Gesselman, who swung like, you know, he was a normal batter this year, a normal pitcher batting this year, had the highest contact rate of any batter in baseball, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. <laughs> 95.5% contact rate. He's, he saw 172 pitches. I set the minimum at 40. And usually the top of the leaderboard is going to go to somebody with 40 on the nose. But he has much more than 40. He has more than four times 40. A 95.5% contact rate, which tops Daniel Robertson and Ben Revere Jonathan Lucroy, Eric Sogard, and every other Major League Baseball player. He also, Ben, had the absolute lowest O-swing rate. He had the lowest wow. O-swing rate in baseball. He has the best eye in baseball. <laughs> what, was his overall swing rate extremely low? Did he? Just, it was, I mean, he did swing he did sometimes. Swing sometimes. But... It was low. In fact, he had the 11th lowest swing rate on pitches in the strike zone and everybody lower than him is a pitcher so he was very uh he was very patient even on pitches in the strike zone uh, but not you know unprecedentedly so he was a very patient hitter though and so he had i think you would say that he was patient but also had a, a very good eye like so for instance the lowest z swing rate is you darvish who swung at 26 percent of pitches in the zone but he swung at 29 out of the zone because he can't hit right he's bad at hitting the reason he doesn't swing at strikes is because he doesn't know that they're going to be strikes and the reason he swings at balls is because he doesn't know they're going to be balls he's just overall bad so darvish swings at more balls than he does strikes and then the next is dylan peters who is actually uh maybe we'll put a pin in him he's at the yeah uh, Alex Wood, you know, swings at very few strikes, but, you know, does swing at pitches outside the zone. Jose Urena, 35% Z swing rate, but 37% O swing rate. Bronson Arroyo, 38% Z swing rate, uh, but 40% O swing rate. So these are not people who have great eyes. They're patient as pitchers, but they don't have good eyes. Gesselman, 38% Z swing rate, which is low, very low, but 5% O swing rate. 5% O swing rate. Uh, he also... He also, compared to all of those people that I named and pretty much every other pitcher, he has a very good O contact rate. Now, we're probably talking about four Mm -hmm. pitches here, is my guess. But he, I think he swung at four pitches outside the zone and made contact with three of them, (laughs) which is very, you know, that's very good. That's That's a hitter. And then his, you know, contact rate, of course, in the strike zone, Uh, is extremely high. And in fact, his contact rate on pitches in the strike zone is fourth highest of all batters. So uh, it is a combination of great eye, never chasing, and then having incredible contact skills on pitches in the zone. And this, by the way, does not include bunts. Bunt attempts are not considered swings. That is how we discovered Gesselman last year. So this is not even Mm -hmm. counting 
the times he, he just lays that down there and taps it. I wonder if he was able to fake it so effectively because he knew that he would be capable of doing it if he were healthy. He had he had the confidence knowing that he could make contact if he were able to swing, and so he could fake it convincingly. Although, I guess you could say the same thing about you, Darvish, who drew that great RBI walk, mm-hmm. the bases-loaded walk against the Cubs in the NLCS, and he is bad at hitting, as you just said, so maybe that doesn't really hold up. I'm going to ask you a quick question. I have known about this since the last week of the season, and because I'm, I am I had such fun writing about Robert Gesselman's plate discipline before, I thought, oh, I can't wait to write about this. And I just could not figure out how. I could not find an entry to making this a story. And so I decided to just give it to this audience right here. But in your, you, you've heard it. Was yeah. there an article there, Ben? Uh, for the main MLB page of ESPN? <laughs> yeah, with no guess. I, I no don't guess. know. Yeah, that's, that's tough. Would have been a great unfiltered at Baseball Perspectives, but... I don't know if you could have built a, a nationally intriguing article out of that <laughs> tidbit. Are you so you're saying I made the right decision? I think so. Okay. The second stat blast is this is a quick one. It's and I'm just going to lay it on you because I want to ask for your hypothesis here. Okay. Since 1993, all teams in the major leagues. So we're talking about 12 million, I think, plate appearances uh, here, something like that. ERA in games within one run. So it, both teams, the team that's ahead and the team that's behind in a one-run game, okay, combined. ERA of 4.29, all right? Okay. ERA in two-run games, 4.27. Okay. ERA in three-run games, 4.28. So these are basically the same number three times. Uh-huh. ERA in four-run games, 4.28. So that's the, the same number as the others. Okay. Yes. All right. So those are all the same, which is what more or less what you'd expect, right? I think so. Yeah. All right. Greater than a four run lead, 4.37. So huh. whether you're winning by four or more or by five or more or losing by five or more, your ERA goes up uh, to uh, by, but you know, by a lot, right? By a tenth of a mm-hmm. run. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Does that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Tie game, ERA of 4.37. So the same as in blowouts. Hmm. Now, what do you figure could explain this? I don't know if I have a theory that can explain that. I was going to say, I mean, obviously in blowouts, A, maybe the blowout games are more likely to come in higher scoring eras and stadiums. So that could be part of it. And it could also be that if there's a big margin of difference you put your worst pitchers in and so the margin gets even bigger the eras get even worse yeah so that makes sense but mm-hmm. <laughs> the tie games being the same as the blowouts uh i don't know that i have a theory that neatly explains both of those things to you i do i think i do okay. well it's two theories they're separate from each other uh you've got the one for the for the, for the blowouts that uh, that one is uh, it seems the obvious one Mm-hmm. I and the tie game. It's actually, I think, disappointing. I think the answer is pretty simple. I think it's that uh, every game starts tied, and so the first inning, when the uh, top of the order is coming up for the first time, that game is not tied because of anything we know about the teams, or anything we know about the pitchers, or anything we know about how they're playing that day, or the weather, or the ballpark. It's tied because you start every game tied, and mm. so I think and that 
scoring in the first inning tends to be higher. Tends to be higher because you have the top of the order up and right. you also have starting pitchers in instead of uh, relievers. So I have not tested to see if this fully accounts for it, but I think that that's it. And I think it's uh, it's somewhat disappointing. And the reason it's disappointing is because I only made you think about it for about 45 seconds. And so you're like, oh, maybe this is interesting. No, it's not. That was like the whole story for you. I thought about this all day. And so for me, it was kind of cool. Yeah, well, I'd like to think I would have gotten it eventually, but it's a satisfying answer. Also, BABIP, by the way, is uh, higher in tie games, which again, makes sense with my uh, first inning uh, explanation. Mm-hmm. And it's much lower in blowouts which also makes sense, but that's the other interesting finding here is that in blowouts, it it does seem like runners quit hustling more than fielders quit hustling, Hmm. perhaps, right? Because Mm -hmm. in blowouts, maybe you just don't run out the grounders. Yeah, or you take out your starters, so you've got worse Worse hitters hitters Worse batter guys. Yeah, but worse pitchers too. And it's both sides. Oh, well, yeah, I guess it's both sides, but yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, you could be right about that. Yeah. Could be. Okay, that's fun. All right. All right, question from another Patreon supporter named Hans. I saved this one for a little while because I thought maybe you'd have a a good answer to this. So there's no actual question in this question, but I think there's an implied one. So Hans says he is working on a retirement plan. He is a lifelong baseball fan living in the Netherlands. So he says, I have always dreamt of living in an MLB town and experiencing a complete season as a season ticket holder. I have started to save money to execute this plan when I retire in about seven years. It seems quite a long time away, but I have only one thing on my bucket list, and I don't want to mess it up. I feel it's a time to get serious. First and foremost, I love the game of baseball. Everything else comes second. As a Mets fan, I think any team could do, really. I guess that means he he's not married to the idea of doing this with the Mets. He could go anywhere because maybe the Mets season won't be that much fun. He says, stadium-wise, I've been to City Field, Yankee Stadium, and Safeco Field. I would love to live in New York City for six months, but that may turn out to be too expensive. Also, what are the chances the Mets will not only be lovable, but also good in 2025? Which means that the most important item on my list is atmosphere. If my wife doesn't want to come, by the way, I like how he just sprang that he has a wife here after announcing that baseball is the most important thing (laughs) in his life. Hopefully, his wife's not listening or she's exempt from that somehow if my wife doesn't want to come i will live alone and although that won't be a problem i will need a certain level of comfort to be happy living and working in amsterdam i am used to a laid-back and cosmopolitan atmosphere which i love i'm not rich so i'll be looking for a humble abode when i picture my game days i see myself walking or riding a bike to the stadium i guess during the season the weather should be good enough in all mlb cities and that's where it ends there's no question but i assume he's (laughs) asking for advice here about where he should spend his retirement season ticket year. So he, uh, and what, I'm sorry, what's the timeline? Seven years or he, seven years from, from now, now, he will retire in about seven years. Does, and he, and does then, he have to decide now? <laughs> well, I guess not. I guess, <laughs> I guess there's no reason to decide now, but he's daydreaming about it. Maybe. And I don't know. He's got to find a place to live. He's got to make arrangements. He should probably wait to make a final decision until you know which teams are going to be good that year. I guess that would factor into your decision. But uh, And he doesn't, but, so, so far as we know, he this is his first year living in the United States or, or perhaps yes, in Canada. He's, he's been here. He's visited. He's been to baseball games. Yeah. But it this is like going to be not. his American experience, though. Right. Yeah. Oh, boy. It's a lot of pressure. 
<laughs> and so, I mean, obviously the answer would be, it's not just Abbott's, like it'd be heavily influenced by, uh, you know, who's going to be playing a compelling season. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't, I don't know much about the city of Cleveland, but, uh, you know, relative to like some of the other cities I do know a lot about, but like, for instance, I could see Cleveland being uh, like a top five answer for, for 2018. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a person who's grown up in the West coast, my whole life and has lived in some big cities and some coastal cities, Cleveland might be my answer if it were one yeah. year for 2018. Although if he envisions himself walking or biking to the park every day, that's going to be an issue well, in April and, and October potentially. Yeah, again, I don't, I don't know anything about Cleveland. Like, I don't know if they have a, a train system, for instance. Like, I love trains, and so yeah. to me, you know, if you have to take the train for two homestands in April, that'd be worth it. But also, mm-hmm. you could bike in. Come on, you put on a jacket and a little <laughs> and a muffler. Don't you think? You could, but this is uh, his perfect year. This is what his whole life has been <laughs> building up to here. He shouldn't have to compromise. Yeah. So. And, and well, and anyway, Cleveland wouldn't wouldn't be my answer, except that I think they have probably, you know, they're, they're probably the, the best bet for the most compelling season in, in 2018 from a baseball standpoint. Hmm. Them or, or maybe the Yankees, but the Yan- not, right. not even the Yankees. Yeah, I think they could. They could, but that offense is going to be fun. Let's, I know yeah, well, you don't okay. like home runs. So let's just say, Ben. <laughs> highlights. Let, let's let's let me rephrase this question just 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 to get a I don't know a couple of details out of the way. But let's say that this question was that every Major League Baseball team wins the World Series this year in a different dimension. Mm-hmm. Which would you recommend he spend this season in? So, I mean, we're weighing affordability here. It sounds like he's not sure if he can afford New York. If if he can afford New York, then it's New York because, A, he's a Mets fan, for one thing, and, B, it sounds like he would like to live in New York. He said so, if he could afford it. So, I guess if we knew that the Mets were going to win the World Series in this dimension, yeah. then you would want him to be yeah. in New York. So, let's take the Mets out of it because for some reason okay. we're, presumably because it's not realistic to live in New York, He's he has gone beyond the obvious, which is that he mm-hmm. is a Mets fan. Okay. So... Otherwise, all we know that is he wants warm weather and he wants a laid back and cosmopolitan atmosphere. I mean, and he wants a nice ballpark experience. Uh, maybe San Francisco, San Diego. San, I mean, weather wise, I guess you would go with San Diego and ballpark experience wise. Maybe you'd go with San Francisco, although that can be cold. But West Coast, yeah. presumably. So Yeah, and it's a great walking city. And it's got trains mm-hmm. that can take you to places that are, so, you know, somewhat affordable, but not mm-hmm. not really that. Like most of the Bay Area is as expensive as more, you know, most of New York. Yes, right. And so he's already going to be taking a train in if he's going to be living somewhere affordable. So maybe San Francisco has to be off limits for the same reasons yeah, the Mets are. The team's away half the time, so obviously we're just almost ranking cities here at a certain level because he has to have things to do. Well, what are on... we doing, Ben? <laughs> no, we're trying to plan. <laughs> we're retirement planners for Hans. <laughs> I don't want to screw this up. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to ruin his life if I give him bad advice here. I think our, our main advice is to not decide this for a while, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Wait until as late as you possibly can, which, uh, I mean, presumably you can wait until the off season before, right? Because you can find a place to live. So uh, 
you can wait, you can look at the projections, you can look at how the roster is stacking up. You don't have to plan this thing in advance. And presumably you have a short list, like, you know, Shohei Otani was theoretically interested in all 30 teams, but it seems like in practice he was only interested in several teams, and I'm guessing that's the same for Hans too. So uh, I bet he has a decent idea of what he wants to do already. But uh, I don't know, I just feel a lot of pressure to plan the perfect retirement for him here. But I would say just wait. Don't commit too soon. There's no need to yet. So uh, there's a lot yeah. of there's a I would also say that there are a lot of really good cities. And the more I get to go to them, the more I realize that almost all the cities are good. And there's there's one there's one city that's bad in the majors. <laughs> and I'm not going to say what it is, but uh, I was talking to a friend about this the other day and boy, we were just owning this city. Uh, it is not a good city. But the others are are pretty much all all pretty good. And there's even Especially for for one summer, if you've never been there before, you could probably have a, a time anywhere. In 29 of them. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, so yeah, I think that they're like don't uh yeah, don't uh I, I would say don't don't set your filters too strong. I, I would be willing to go just about anywhere uh, and have a really good time. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even a different city. Maybe you don't even have to do baseball. You could go to Santa Fe and uh, spend the summer <laughs> there. That's a great city. Beautiful city. Yeah. Get MLB TV. You can watch baseball from wherever you are. Could even do it from Amsterdam. Not even do any of this. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Hans, if this podcast is somehow still going and ask us seven again, years, ask us again, yeah, yeah. Ask and us give, again. <laughs> give us a way to like let's 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 we. I need to ask you some questions before I can answer yeah. this. We need to know more about Hans and his taste. Like, and what's your yeah? What's your take on Vietnamese food? Uh huh. Uh, avocados and fresh fruit yeah all right question from ryan oh still going <laughs> these episodes are uh pretty long these days ryan this is kind of a same question so i saved this one too are baseball fields the correct size and shape in all other competitive games the most valuable thing a player can do is also the hardest thing to do oh, man. and least frequent outcome that occurs for instance the three-point line in basketball or a bullseye in darts even a scratch-off lottery ticket follows this logic why is baseball the outlier Shouldn't the fields be constructed so that singles are most frequent, followed by doubles, triples, and finally home runs? Mm -hmm. In 2017, there were approximately seven times more home runs than triples. Maybe MLB's home run issue is just a product of difficulty not being properly scaled to value. To pick arbitrary numbers, why not 370, 450, 370 across the outfield instead of the standard 330, 400, 330? Fans enjoy home runs, but with the increased activity and excitement make up for the reduction in home run rate, hitters would be appropriately incentivized to balance contact versus power obviously there are a lot of other variables in play but do you think the game would benefit overall from having these outcome percentages be more linear yeah that's a great question yeah this has never really occurred to me (laughs) which is one sign maybe that it's not a problem in the current state it i don't think it has ever occurred to me that it is strange and singular that baseball has more valuable things that are much more frequent than other things. If we thought about this harder, would we come up with things in other sports that are, I'm sure yeah, Ryan yeah. has devoted more thoughts to this than we have, but I will say he mentioned darts and darts has this weird thing where in order to make the incentives a little bit more complex, the most points is not actually a, a bullseye, right? It's like a, a triple 20. And mm. you do that not by getting a super duper bullseye, 
or even close to a bullseye, but this thing that's quite a ways away from a bullseye. And then, then the next best thing is like a double 20, which is like almost a miss. Uh-huh. And the reason that they do that is because games put in quirks that make it more complex, that add elements of decision-making and game theory. Otherwise, all sports would just be that thing at the fair where you smash a hammer down and try to make the, the thing go mm-hmm. up, right? It'd just be a sheer measurement of, of force or speed. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, he's wrong. But in the other sense, he's right. And if you look mm-hmm. at 1903, which I'm looking at right now, there were 151 homers, 543 triples, 1,485 doubles, and approximately 8,000 singles, which means Uh that they did intend this to be this way. Yeah. And it's not this way probably in part because they wanted to sell tickets that were closer to the action. Yeah. Well, I mean, doesn't the fact that it evolved to be this way suggest that this is better, that this is more desirable? Well, that it, it would be if it were determined that it is more entertaining and that that's the reason. I, the reason I brought up the stands is because I'm cynically mm-hmm. suggesting that the reason it evolved this way might be because they liked money. True. But also the game can't have gotten so much less entertaining because of that, that it counteracted the fact that you're you're not as far from the field. Yeah. So Could be. Yeah. I mean, it happened in stages, obviously. Like, I went to 1903. Mm-hmm. If I'd gone to 1923, when the, the, uh, the, the measurements, the dimensions had not changed, only the ball had changed. Well, now home runs have almost passed triples. They're basically equal home runs and triples. So it happened in stages, right? The, the, the rejiggering of ballparks came later. The ball was, you know, came much earlier. So, I, I mean, I don't know. Is everything about baseball then by definition better now because it evolved this way? I, I'm not saying it's not. I'm asking if that is a, a, a premise that, that we're signing on to. Probably not because, I mean, better in some ways, but maybe not better from an entertainment standpoint. We've talked about that on this podcast, how the efficiency of modern baseball may in some ways be less entertaining, but better from the perspective of trying to build a team that's good at baseball, but maybe not better you know, in part because of more strikeouts and, you know, all the things that the sabermetric era has brought into vogue, not always the best from a a spectator standpoint. So I would say that, I mean, the game has gotten more competitive and more skill-driven and more impressive in certain ways, but not necessarily better in the way that Ryan is talking about here. I personally am not big on home runs. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if I actually should. I don't know if I believe that. I'm now confusing. I think I'm conflating different opinions I have about different things. I don't like, I don't think home runs are are particularly interesting. I don't like the home runs themselves. Like I don't like home run highlights. I don't like home runs, but I do think that the threat of the home run makes all the other baseball interesting. I don't know if I, and I don't yet know whether I like the threat of the home run, right? Like the home run is implicit in everything else that happens. It's the reason that they choose the pitches because they don't want to allow mistakes that are going to be hit for home runs. And so maybe I do like that, but on the other hand, that's why they nibble. Maybe I don't Mm -hmm. like that. Too complicated, too complicated to say where I am on that. But I, right now I'm leaning toward this is the best question we've ever had. (laughs) It is a very thought provoking question. The fence thing is the problem, right? Because I mean, if baseball were purely a TV sport, no one was actually in the ballpark, 
then I'd be much more likely to sign on to this. But no one would want this, right? No one would want to switch to those field dimensions just to have more triples relative to home runs. I mean, I think a lot of people, maybe most people, would agree that triples are fun and there aren't enough triples. That's a a common complaint Uh you hear about baseball. But if the price is that you have to sit way far away, I don't know that anyone would make that trade unless you're not going to games anymore in person. And most home runs, that, maybe not most, but a, a huge portion of the home runs that you would lose would not be turning into triples. They'd be turning into outs. And yeah. San Diego baseball is, is fairly boring or was, and that's why they changed it. I don't know that you could. It's not that easy to create triples because outfielders, you know, there's a lot of plays where the outfielder is standing there watching the ball land six feet behind him over the wall and the dimensions are are not going like you can't change the dimensions and make that a triple mm-hmm. just out of curiosity how far back do you think that the that you'd have to move the fences uniformly how far back would you have to move the fences to have more triples than home runs and is there a number or would you is is whatever distance back would you end up getting more inside the park home runs offsetting at a certain point? Huh. Well, so as you pointed out, there used to be many more triples than home runs, but that was with a dead ball. So with the juiced ball, would you ever get there? You'd have so many more singles for one thing. I mean, assuming the outfield really play doing back, is, Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. And if and if they don't play back, if they play in to prevent the singles, then then there's probably a place you could put the fences to increase triples, but still make it manageable to get to the ball fast enough to prevent the inside the park home run. So I don't know. Maybe somewhere between where he's setting it here, he said three seventy, four fifty, three seventy. If we split the difference between that and as he said, the more standard three thirty, four hundred, three thirty. So if it's like three fifty. 425, 350? That doesn't even seem... I don't think that's deep enough. I don't to, either. No. So, yeah, I guess you'd have to go as, as far back as he's saying here. So 370, 450, 370? Mm, maybe that would do it. 450. That's that's a deep sitter field. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think that would do it? I mean, where's the ratio is so skewed now toward home runs that you really have to make up a lot of ground. Yeah. I'll tell you this. I, uh, I don't mind home runs. What I think is most profoundly broken about baseball and is from the very founding I think is broken is the single the way that singles happen is that there so many singles are singles because they're hit poorly you know that what Statcast and Alan Nathan have have given us is the, the donut hole where if you hit the ball poorly it's an out but if you hit the ball a little worse it's a hit mm-hmm. and that I hate that I mean I, I don't hate I don't hate it when I'm watching it it's fine base hits are suspenseful and so on but that idea that like you get constantly rewarded for doing the wrong thing and constantly penalized for doing the right thing seems much more illogical than the skewed home run to triple ratio. And -hmm. if you started to change the dimensions in a way that would cause the outfield to move back, then you'd be increasing the donut hole. And Uh the donut hole is what I hate. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, this would be a big donut hole. And then, of course, the infield might be tempted to then move back a little bit. And so then you'd have more weak grounders for hits Mm. if that happened. And, man, those get me so mad. Yeah. Have I ever told you my the the my my least favorite sentence in baseball? I have I ever told you? I, I've tweeted it, and you follow me, so technically <laughs> I have. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Okay. My least favorite sentence is in baseball is not hit hard enough for them to get the double play. 
Mm. Oh, that one kills me. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm keeping current baseball over uh, linear reward baseball and the sacrifices we would have to make to bring that about. It's a good question, though, and it's worth thinking about. We, I mean, we have not spent more than a few minutes on this issue, and I think that it's fair to assume that fixing baseball <laughs> might take longer than that. Might take more than a few minutes, and so mm-hmm. maybe we'll give it a little time and... We'll see if next year I've got an answer for you. Okay. Would you care to come back for the minor league free agent draft in a month yeah. or two or whenever we do that? As long as you promise to get me a, a, a list that we're all using. <laughs> yeah, that can be tricky. I don't even know. I, I have a vague sense that you won, but I... I don't know if the numbers were ever added up, but we'll review that when we do that, I guess. So I will talk to you again fairly soon then. Thanks for uh, filling in. Sure thing. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Sam still gets a slice of that Patreon money, along with me and Jeff and the sites that have hosted the podcast. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Andrew Connolly, Ben Wilbur, Ben Young, Tom Ahn, and Genevieve Luthi. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. Closing in on 7,000 members. You can also rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks as always to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Keep your questions and comments coming, please. Replenish our mailbag. of the top Ryan's best question ever, according to Sam. You can submit those questions via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. I will be back with another couple guests to talk to you later this week. We was listening, we was listening to the devil's radio. We was listening, yeah, we was listening to the devil's radio. devil's radio